Hi, everyone. I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm pleased to be talking with Jessica Kingdon, the director of Ascension. Ascension had its world premiere at the 2021 Tribeca Film Festival, where it won the Best Documentary Prize, as well as the Albert Maisel's Award for Best New Documentary Director. It's played at dozens of film festivals worldwide and won many other awards, including the Best Documentary Prize at the Hamptons International Film Festival. And also it's been named to numerous end of the year awards lists, including Critics' Choice, Gotham Awards, Doc NYC Shortlist, the IDA Awards, Independent Spirit Awards, and of course the Oscar Shortlist. The film's director, editor, and cinematographer, Jessica Kingdon, is a New York City-based Chinese-American filmmaker. Ascension is her feature documentary debut. Ascension is a really fascinating film. It is also a visual feast. It's a cinematic essay. It's very observational. It is like opening a curtain into a fascinating world of modern China. As you watch the film and then in talking to Jessica, it's clear that this isn't really even a film necessarily about China's modern economy. Yes, it is in part, but really it's about the workers. It's about those cracks in the system where people are able to say what they mean and express themselves and show camaraderie with each other. It's also a film with some surprising and ironic moments. The scene, of course, in the sex doll factory is incredible. It's also a film with a lot of unexpected juxtapositions. So you have a scene in a bodyguard training academy with these tough guy instructors, and suddenly this goat appears on camera. So I don't think that's something you could ever script. It's just one of those moments that Jessica was able to capture and fold into this broader narrative. It's an amazing film, and I was really privileged to be able to talk to Jessica. And without further ado, here is my conversation with the director of Ascension, Jessica Kingdon. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to Top Docs. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Ken. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Can you give us a brief log line of the film? Ascension is a visually driven essay film about labor, aspiration, and consumerism in the People's Republic of China. Using a cinematic lens, I examine what living the so-called Chinese dream actually looks like today through an immersive exploration of the pursuit of wealth and the universal paradox of progress. Why do you make documentary films? I had a good answer for this at some point, and then I think I forgot it. But I will say, for me, making documentary is a type of discovery process where the camera can reveal things to me that I won't necessarily see with my own eyes and ears. And I'm constantly amazed and impressed by what footage that I review can reveal that I hadn't caught in the moment. I also think, for me, the job of a documentary filmmaker. There's many jobs and many types of documentaries, but the one that I've tasked myself with is being able to identify moments of humanity or moments of poetry that happen in the day-to-day life that we may not recognize immediately and elevate them to a level of art. So instead of creating something from scratch, 
which is maybe what a fiction filmmaker does or a novelist does. It's identifying these gems within reality that already exists and heightening them. I think that's something that is very clearly done by you in Ascension. And it's one of the things that makes it such a joy to watch. And so fascinating because you never know when those gems are going to come. I so, so. I, Thank you. Let's start with the quotations that bookend the film. And I'll just, for our listeners, I'll say that the quotation at the beginning in the intertitle is, hand in my sword, I ascend the tower. I gaze afar, hoping to relieve my worries. The tower is too high to climb. Instead, my troubles only grow. And then it's identified as an excerpt from the poem Ascension, written in 1912 by my great-grandfather. So tell us, who was your great-grandfather, and how did you come across this poem? It's funny. Growing up, I would hear these stories about my great-grandfather that sounded like tall tales to me, because my mom is quite the exaggerator at times. She would tell us stories about this famous great-grandfather poet in Hunan province in China who was able to read a book forwards and then recite the whole thing backwards immediately. So that's why it sounded kind of like tall tales. The story is sort of convoluted. Flash forward to when I'm making this film, Ascension, I mentioned to her that I was going to this city called Changsha, which is in Hunan province, in order to film at an air conditioning factory. The air conditioning factory is where you see that scene of people in the military garb doing the exercises. She mentioned to me, oh, that's where your grandfather and great-grandfather are from, which I had no idea about because nobody in my immediate family had ever been there. So I told this to one of my producers, Kira, who then put me in touch with a local scholar of that city. And this scholar was two days notice, was able to actually find relatives of mine in that city that I didn't know that I had. And they came and met me. And with these relatives, they also brought the head of the poet society that my great grandfather was part of. And he brought with him a book from the museum of the poetry that my great grandfather had written. He wouldn't let me take it home with me because it belonged in the museum. But Months later, when we were looking for the title of our film, we had been calling it Untitled PRC Project the whole time. I went on Baidu on Chinese internet and found some of these poems. And one of them is called Ascension. And the themes of the paradox of progress resonated with me, which is how we got the title. In the poem, the narrator, presumably my great-grandfather, ascends to the height of a tower. And from that vantage point, he's able to see the invading territory. This is 1912, so it's the fall of the Qing dynasty, the last empire in China. That vantage point and seeing all of the chaos and turmoil surrounding him gives him great anxiety in this poem. And for me, the parallels I saw was that we tend to think of class ascension as something that will ameliorate our fears and our worries, but it also comes with unforeseen consequences. In this case, it's the consequences of income inequality, of exploitation, and of environmental devastation. So even though it was a completely different context and a completely different era, the poem, it felt to me like it spoke to the film that I had been making. And also the phrase, I gaze afar, certainly brings to mind your own gaze as you're making this film and taking modern China as your subject. This is over 100 years later after the poem is written. 
What gave you the impetus to want to gaze afar yourself and up close at today's China? Yeah, I like that observation. In 2017, I made a short film called Commodity City, which takes place in the largest wholesale mall in the world, which is in EU China. I was drawn to this space because most of the cheap made in China products that we handle on a day-to-day basis have passed through this enormous five-mile mall. So this one physical site is more relevant to everyone in the world, really, than we could ever imagine. I was interested in exploring the people and the physical site there as a site of where there's this paradox again. That word, this paradox of intimacy. And get alienation, alienation of the whole global supply chain. Of course, the impersonal nature of it. But then within this mall, there were families and young children running around, and it just felt like this really interesting contradiction. So from there, I became interested in more interested in China, but also making a film about showing the hidden economies that kind of power our day-to-day consumer-driven lives. In that sense, that's why Ascension, the film, opens in a low-wage labor market where people are looking to work at companies like Huawei and Foxconn, which of course famously makes iPhones, and then ends in a rare earths mineral mine. And rare earths are what are used to make smartphones. And looking at the kind of unintended consequences of all of this, so the byproduct of the rare earths mineral mine is actually a five-mile toxic lake of sludge. I wasn't able to capture that in the film, but I think we can kind of feel it. Anyway, I'm kind of going on a tangent, but originally Ascension was going to be more about the cycle of production, consumption, and waste, and more environmentally focused. But as I was filming, the more interesting and more relevant story became the human stories about the pursuit of wealth and a study of materialism in contemporary China that is relevant not just to China, but I felt really mirrored、uh, a lot of the so-called Western world as well. So I'm definitely going to get into some of those areas with you, but I did want to ask about you and your relationship to China. You alluded to your great grandfather, your grandmother, but what's your relationship? I'm half Chinese. I'm biracial. My mom is Chinese, but I was born in the states, so I'm Chinese American. Before making this film, I actually didn't know about relatives in China that we had. One more question for now about the idea of gaze, and and this is one reason why I wanted to ask a bit about your personal relationship to China. Would you describe your gaze as more of an insider or an outsider's gaze, if there is such a distinction to be made in this kind of situation? Certainly, I would identify myself as a. An outsider's gaze when looking at China. I think that there is a kind of familiarity and connection, but you know, I'm Chinese American, so there is definitely a, a distance. And I think that I see China from sort of an in-between perspective. This is a a really ambitious project. The scope is wide and and deep. It reaches into many different aspects of modern life in China. As the director of the film, what kind of map did you draw for yourself that you could rely on to help you decide? Okay, here's what I'm looking for, and here's what I know when I found something that I know I want to pursue and hopefully shoot. Because you could have easily 
gone down the rabbit hole, never come out, but you clearly figured out what you wanted to shoot and how you wanted to shoot it. I had to put on blinders to some extent. Since the film is not geographically limited or limited by a character, I had to create some boundaries of the types of locations to include, like you say. So I was trying to create a portrait of people who kind of buy into the myth of the Chinese dream or the American dream or whatever nation's dream we're kind of pursuing. So it was people who were in pursuit of upward mobility and kind of had faith in the system that they would be rewarded if they followed the right scripts. Of course, this is not a portrait of China, of people in China. This is a very specific sector of it. So when people ask me, you know, are you saying all people in China like are like this? Are you saying this is what this society is like? Definitely not. It was a very intentional and specific choice to focus on this because Like I said, the film is about the quest for upward mobility and a study of materialism. So all of the locations had to do with something related to the industrial supply chain or to striving for economic class mobility. The first third takes place in factories and has to do with labor. Then in the middle section, it's more about new forms of labor that I kind of became more aware of while shooting in China, which had to do with this group of entrepreneurs and live streamers selling goods, which kind of mirrored to me live streamers and kind of lifestyle Instagram influencers in the States. In China, they're called KOLs, which stands for Key Opinion Leader. And I was interested in these people who are making a living from selling products, using their personality online. Also looking at jobs that were created as a byproduct of the new wealthy class. This includes the Butler School, of course, and it also includes the bodyguard school because a lot of these bodyguards are training in the hopes that in the service to protect high net worth individuals, so protecting wealth, but jobs created for that specifically. And then I was interested in looking at the fruits of all of this at kind of leisure activities and consumerism. So that's why we have the malls and the water parks and that fancy dessert dinner. The idea was loosely kind of ascending the class structure. But within that, I was looking for cracks in this system and places of resistance that may not look like the kind of resistance that is so obvious, but I think it's there. And also looking at the unintended consequences. I love what I would describe as the easy structure of the film in that (laughs) it is well-structured, but it's not necessarily obvious or rigid. It just kind of carries us through. It's very effective. And also those cracks you describe are also quite interesting. I want to go back to the, the first scenes of the movie, which are in the labor market which are really fascinating. You've got these, what I would call barkers, who are calling out the wages, benefits, and requirements for these seemingly low-skilled jobs. To a Western viewer, it seems like a vibrant kind of Wild West sort of labor market. And I couldn't help wondering, you know, how widespread are these and how exactly do they work? These are factories that are actually, and part of why this location is a sensitive one is because these factories are coming in and looking for day laborers beneath the minimum wage. 
So yeah, that's part of why, you know, they don't want you to see that. A lot of the people who are coming to these job markets are migrant workers. So they're coming from other provinces, coming from the countryside, perhaps coming to the cities in order to pick up a few days work kind of thing. This was in the city of Shenzhen, which is known as this booming tech city. So it makes sense that in this city, you have these tech companies coming and looking to power themselves with these low-wage day workers. Is my dog making too much noise? I, I'm definitely, is it a him or her? Her. I'm, I'm hearing her. <laughs> She's having a hell of a time rolling around. A lot of times these day laborers that are coming from different provinces throughout the country to look for work, in this case, it was in the city of Shenzhen, known as one of the tech capitals of the world. A lot of them feel kind of hopeless about the idea of the Chinese dream, which is this level of stability and having a middle-class lifestyle and having a home and a car. And so they've kind of just decided to do the bare minimum of work so that then they can just play video games, basically. A lot of it has a hopeless feel because I think that these people have kind of given up on making it in this middle class lifestyle. What's interesting is we see that at the beginning of the film and it makes us think, yes, this is probably an exploitative kind of day labor market. I wasn't aware that the wages were below legal requirements, but it's not surprising. But what's interesting is then we pivot to the factory floor and the labor that we see in the factory, as hard as it is, does not necessarily feel exploited. And These I, are good factories. The ones that let us in, the ones that we could gain access to are not factories that are going to be breaking any violations and they're not going to be what people think of as sweatshops. Because the film also isn't about the worst hidden parts of capitalism in China. It's about the the parts of when it's supposed to be working well. What does it look like? And is it still fair? Yeah, I love the way you kind of upend our expectations there. And it made me wonder, though, how did you get access to these factories? Because we weren't doing anything that was overtly political or quote unquote, sensitive about China, we were able to be completely transparent about being this independent American documentary crew coming to make a film about China's economic rise and wanting to show day-to-day -day life. We worked with several great fixers and field producers within China who often acted as liaisons between myself and the locations. But, you know, it was a lot of asking, a lot of requests that we had to put out. And a lot of times people would say no. For each yes, there was sometimes dozens or even hundreds of no's. So a lot of it was a numbers game just to see who would be comfortable. Frankly, I was surprised by the number of people who said yes. Part of it speaks to kind of a pride and wanting to show, you know, these locations, these factories or these schools. But I think part of it was also within this spirit of curiosity and a desire for cross-cultural exchange and learning about other people that you don't normally get to meet. I want to talk about the sex doll factory. There's something, you know, undeniably fascinating about watching the process by which 
steel and rubber and a lot of hot irons are used to make sex dolls. It was, of course, interesting to see the guys making the skeletal structures and the women shaping the rubber exteriors, if I got that right. What was it like from your perspective, speaking of curiosity, to see these dolls take shape as you were observing and recording the workers at work? Believe it or not, we had to tone that scene down a lot as over the top and absurd as it seems. It was even crazier being there in person. I think we shot there for three days and there were a few sex doll factories we went to actually. The first time I went, it was kind of sensory overload. Of course, you feel kind of sad because it feels very exploitative. But once you spend time there, um, you kind of become desensitized to it. And it really does just become another product to manufacture. But it was super interesting being there and seeing the interactions between the workers, particularly the female workers, who I thought demonstrated a lot of kinship and camaraderie with each other, putting a lot of care both into shaping the dolls, but also into helping each other. There was just this, again, this dissonance of the exploitation of the location of the sex dolls, but then this this kind of tenderness and kinship between the female workers. Absolutely. They are helping each other and trying to do the best job they can and do take a lot of pride in what they're doing, it seems. It's in these moments that I found myself having my own assumptions challenged about what is skilled versus unskilled labor. I mean, these laborers, these women, their skills are very technical. They do a lot of problem solving. They show a lot of ingenuity. So I felt like by the time that scene ends, my own assumptions about labor were kind of overturned. Yeah, yeah. These sex dolls, they're artisanal and they're custom made. There's a lot of skill involved in in crafting them. For me, a lot of the film comes down to this sort of experiencing these two emotions at once where towards the end of the scene there's a young woman who is I believe someone's relative and was there in training she's not wearing a uniform and she's kind of like observing everything passing her by and observing how the dolls are being made on one hand you feel or I I feel sad for her thinking that this is her future but on the other hand You see her really taking it in and learning and thinking about having a job. So that's also a good thing. So yeah, I just, I feel a lot of conflicting emotions with that, which I like. Yeah, I found the shots of that young woman particularly striking. And there are other moments where you focus on people, often in close-up. I wanted to ask you about your approach cinematically. Not only did you direct the film, you edited it, you also shot it with Nathan Truesdale. So talk to us about some of these kind of still shots almost. Yeah, these kinds of moments of respite from everything that we see. I think that the human face is very revealing, says a lot. And of course, in this film, like I said, I was seeking out spaces where people are expected to conform and comply within the system. And I was looking for ways to push back against that. Part of it was showing these kind of unexpected moments, but sometimes it really is just studying a close-up of a face and trying to kind of get lost in, in someone else's face and their individuality. 
also the film is obviously very visually driven. And so during some moments when there's a lot of lecturing happening, since there's a lot of schools of knowledge transference happening, I, I was just looking for ways to make it more visually interesting. The other thing about the doll scene, there's irony on top of irony. There's one moment in the scene where they're talking about their various injuries and ailments as a result of the work that they do while they're creating these idealized bodies that are perfect. Yeah, there's a kind of violence in it where it's like they're injuring their own bodies in service of this product for somebody else. And I think that's kind of mirrored to manner school for women. It's business etiquette when they're learning how many teeth to show when smiling or how high to raise your hand when when waving to somebody. And again, I think there's a kind of violence implicit in that scene where the body is being, there's pressure on it to conform to a type of standard in the service of business etiquette, in the service of the economy. So to me, that scene is also linked to the bodyguard scene where we actually see explicit violence of men hitting each other, learning to take the physical forces of people that are presumably, you know, trying to get to their wealthy boss. So there's certain ways that violence is inscribed onto the body in ways that are explicit and implicit. And then, of course, we know that these sex dolls, where they're headed and the form of violence that will be perpetrated by the consumers against these objects that they're creating. But that's something that washes over us, maybe, as we're watching the scene. It's not in the film. In terms of the etiquette school, I think there's a banner or a sign behind that says it's the International Senior Etiquette Trainer Double Certificate Training, which is quite, quite impressive. <laughs> it's not just certificate mm. training, it's double certificate training. And there, by the way, there are a lot of those just incredible moments in the film, either with signs, billboards, or spoken words that give me sort of a double take or make me laugh. There's a lot of humor in the film. So there's a scene at the etiquette school where the instructor is talking about the precise number of teeth that need to be shown. I think it's eight, all from the upper, which was educational for me. I need to practice my smiling skills for sure. And, and then there's also the precise number of steps you need to take as you're approaching somebody to hug them in a professional setting. I couldn't help but be reminded during these scenes of the American industrial engineer and godfather of scientific management, Frederick Taylor, who is certainly known for his work on factory floors and being very precise about a lot of these things. Was Taylor somebody that was in your mind as you were making this film? That's interesting. No one said that before. No, actually. But what was mirrored to me and made me feel like I was on the right track when I found this scene was in Frederick Wiseman's The Shop, which takes place in, I believe it's in Neiman Marcus, some kind of high-end mall in, I think, Dallas, Texas. There's a scene where the shopkeepers, the women who work there, are being trained about how to deal with customers and their manager is kind of showing them the right way to smile. This was in the 80s in America. There was just kind of all these echoes between this kind of American performance of trying to get people to buy stuff and then in China today. But I like that Frederick Taylor comparison. I want to talk to you about the International Butler Academy, which is an incredible place, obviously. How did you find it? And 
Is this really for real? <laughs> it's for real. How did I find it? How did I first hear about it? I can't remember the exact moment I first heard about it, but a lot of these places do come up in, in news stories sometimes. And I was interested in going to places that I would hear about in the news in China, but kind of spend more time there. This is actually one of the few locations that I myself just cold reached out to. And luckily the manager, she spoke English and I explained what I was doing and they let me come and film. It's in Chengdu, China, and they have headquarters in the Netherlands, actually. There is a Dutch butler training school as well. So it truly is international. Yes, it really is. While I was there, I didn't include this, but while I was there, they had some people from the Netherlands come and kind of examine the students to make sure that they were doing it up to par. But they were all very serious about it. Emotions were running high while I was there because I think their teacher felt like the students weren't doing well enough and were really worried about them and their futures. And then I was there during their graduation. This wasn't in the film, but some people were actually crying because they were very emotional about it. It was sweet. Yeah, I couldn't help but wonder, are these people actually going to get jobs? Because this is definitely a moment where we start to, I think, really hone in on this idea of the Chinese dream, because they are being sold a dream. Can you tell us about this idea, this phrase coined by Xi Jinping of the Chinese dream? The Chinese dream is a term, it's been around for a long time, but Xi Jinping has kind of repopularized it. And it's very similar to the American dream, where there is this belief that if you follow the script, if you work hard, if you do the right things, you'll be rewarded materially and you'll have a certain level of comfort and a middle class lifestyle, which, of course, we all know is not always the case in China and in America. But the Chinese dream, I think, differs from the American dream because it's more collective and it has to do with kind of a national rejuvenation and comeback as a global superpower. So there's more at stake in some ways in the Chinese dream because it's about the individual success, but also the collective success as a nation. That really comes home during the scenes at the cosmetic company yeah. annual conference. And we see the chairman and president giving a speech in which he says things like, wealth only goes to those who deserve it. And I believe hard work will be fruitful and dreams will come. Those things then, really could have come right out of Horatio Alger or any American type ideology. Totally. And then there's that um, incredible graphic of the shipping containers that are clashing. There's the shipping container with the Chinese flag inscribed on it and the shipping container with the American flag and the two are kind of competing with each other. It's very explicit. It's interesting to hear him talk about consumption in China and how, hey guys, we need to catch up to the Americans. Our per capita consumption is way behind the Americans. All we have to do is consume more and we will surpass the U.S. in terms of the economy. Exactly. I couldn't help but wonder, we're sort of in the audience with these people who work at this company. I don't know if you, you talk to many of the workers uh, at this event or just observe them, but what was your sense of the extent to which they were kind of rah-rah with what he was saying or just, gee, I have to be here and you know the wine is free and plentiful and so mm -hmm. I'm just going to do my duty and clap when I'm asked to. 
I think it probably really varies from person to person. It's hard to say as a whole how everyone kind of felt about it. But there was one scene in there that I wish that we had kept in, but we had to take it out because it was kind of too convoluted. And I think this scene really says a lot where they had a kind of lottery system of who would win that year's cash prize. And they gave everyone bracelets that would light up with a certain color. And if you won the prize and one woman's bracelet lit up and she ran on stage and she was frantically waving her arm around and the announcers had to say, no, you didn't actually win. Your bracelet lit up the wrong color. It lit up, you know, blue, which is everyone's bracelet. The winner, their bracelet lit up green or something like that. The look of her face of like excitement to shock and embarrassment and humiliation as she had to be walked off stage. It kind of said everything about this lottery system where we're meant to believe that there is this equal opportunity. But as the chairman says, wealth goes to whoever deserves it. But, you know, in fact, it was this just lottery system. This is a scene, too, where. He does bring in the Americans, and as you say, the visuals kind of heighten this sense of competition. I think you were probably shooting this film during the Trump administration. So obviously, you know, there was a trade war going on between the U.S. and China, really instigated by Trump. What were some of the things that you observed or heard that reflected how people were feeling about this particular time when suddenly relations between the U.S. and China in terms of economics were different than they had been before? I can only really speak to on a personal level. And on a personal level, with me, people were always very interested in in the States and not trying to be competitive or confrontational. The people that I interacted with thought Trump was funny and kind of ridiculous. Actually, at that Starbucks school where people are pledging, they did like a skit impersonating him and how fat he was. He came up a lot, but in more of like, in amused way where people thought that he was just this kind of comic figure and yes there was this trade war going on while we were shooting but it felt to me on an individual level that people didn't want to engage in that kind of competition that it sort of felt like it could be about mutual gain rather than this idea of scarcity and competition i want to go to the scenes at the water park which are very different from what we've seen prior to this. We see people not working primarily, but engaging in leisure activity, which puts these people in a different class, I suppose, than the folks we've seen before. Why was it important to include these scenes? I wouldn't say that they're necessarily in a different class. It was more about showing people's free time and kind of a relief from all of the work. But what was interesting to me was the the rigidity of this kind of leisure time where within the water park you see people broked off in very geometric shapes and even the announcer is saying I hope for people to get into their dream school and by association therefore having their dream job. So even this kind of moment of celebration and release felt like it was in service of getting a job. It felt in some ways like being in the water park and the malls were an extension of being in the factories. However, 
I did want to show a counterweight to all of this. And that's why at the very end, you have this brief scene where there are people who are young and old. Some of the first times we see people outside of the age of the workforce, and they're kind of enjoying themselves in this natural river rather than in an artificial body of water. And to me, that seemed kind of like true connection with leisure and with nature. But what we don't necessarily know is that actually that river is powering a cryptocurrency mine nearby. Interesting. The things that we don't necessarily know still kind of bleed into our understanding, whether we recognize it or not. Yeah, exactly. I was sad because a lot of those things I couldn't make clear in the film because it was just the rule that I set for myself. It wouldn't make sense to put in any exposition like that. But I think that we sort of sense it. Absolutely. There's the scene with some young people having a, a lavish dinner and they're talking about where they want to travel and so on. But they also talk pretty frankly about China itself and its role in the world. I, I kind of wondered about the degree to which these conversations themselves are almost a form of luxury good, as it were, in that they perhaps felt freer to have these kinds of conversations than other people. What brought you to that dinner and what were you trying to show here? Since I was trying to show all class lines, I wanted to film a scene with people who were able to enjoy the spoils of all of this work and kind of show the upper class. The irony is, of course, once we get to the top, the conversation to me, it felt the most stiff, the most stifled. Even though they're saying a lot of things about China, they're talking in a very circuitous manner. And I'm not really sure what they're saying. It's pretty ambiguous. I think this kind of reflects contemporary China where there's a lot of moral ambiguity to begin with. And it's never clear like what you can say and what you can't say. So I think people are kind of talking in circles there. But at the end of the day, people want to reaffirm the status quo, it seems. It's a great point. And actually, the, the scene feels very performative mm -hmm. from their point of view. So while it may seem like they're being frank in their conversation, it's almost like they're performing frankness. Yes, yes. definitely. So at the end of the film, we leave the big cities and you take us to a seaside town and what seems like a tropical island of sorts, both still in China. What was the purpose of taking us to these very different geographies? Like I mentioned before, the film's not geographically based. It's more about the concept of following the industrial supply chain. So it's not that I wanted to show this specific type of geography. This was an Atlantis hotel, a luxury hotel. So I wanted to show this kind of clientele and this high-end resort hotel. I like that it is so geographically different too. It's not limited to this one geography. It's just following the cycle of the Chinese dream. For the final question, I wanted to go back to your great-grandfather's poem. The quote at the end says, I ascend and gaze afar with a clear heart, only to find that everywhere is already raised. If we put you in the position of being the one who ascended and gazed afar, with your film camera. Did you find that everywhere was already raised? It's hard to say. I, I think it's pretty open-ended and can mean a lot of things. Even in the translation, raised, it doesn't necessarily need to be interpreted that way. It could also be interpreted 
as kind of pacified, calmed. But for me, the way that I felt is that there was this kind of despair inherent to that. And maybe it could be read in a lot of ways, but maybe one of them is kind of looking and saying, oh, we've gone too far as a human culture and maybe there's no going back. We like to ask people, what's up next for you? I would say doing the press and publicity for this film is taking up a lot of my mental energy. So it's been slow developing something next. But the more I think about it, the more I think I want to embrace this method of a more symphonic, wordless essay film. But this next one would be more about humanity's relationship to the earth and the global food supply system. Terrific. And I wish you well on that because it sounds like a topic that you're very well suited for. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like it might be biting off more than I can chew, but we'll see. Jessica, I really want to congratulate you on a tremendous film. There's so much here to gaze upon and think about and be in awe of. And also just to congratulate you on identifying those moments of humanity and poetry in everyday life and elevating them, as you said. So congratulations and thank you so much for talking to us today. Thanks so much, Ken. Great talking with you. Hope to see you again. Absolutely. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. Do you have a hidden gem, a film that you don't think gets the attention it deserves? Yes, let's see. A Casa My Home. I was blown away by that one, the Romanian film. Oh, another one that I loved that no one talks about is China's Van Gogh's. Yeah, that was from 2016. And it's about this village in China that paints copies of Van Gogh. In the film, they actually travel to Amsterdam to see the Van Gogh Museum and in the gift shop. Well, I don't want to give it away, but I'll just say it's great. <laughs>